chapter 2. This morning, uh, a great chapter in our study because, um, as the Lord would have it, we are placed right into uh, the premier gospel paragraph of Philippians 2, right around the Christmas holiday season. We're going to be studying this for a few weeks uh, together, and it's just prime biblical material to focus us on the incarnation and the coming of Christ as God who took on flesh, God who is also man. So Philippians 2, I'm going to read this gospel paragraph to us now, beginning at verse 5, and I'm going to read through verse 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to sort of look at a verse that we probably won't be able to even get into this morning, but as sort of a, a launching point for our study. And that is the verse that centers on the cross, verse 8. This is Jesus Christ, and being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want to just sort of capture that one word for a second, the word cross. What comes to mind when you think of a cross? I think sometimes we have the temptation to be swept into society's sort of symbolizing of that almost in iconic form and we forget the significance of the cross the cost of the cross you know it's sort of put on shirts and placarded around and we see it uh, even around christmas time you know symbols around of the cross uh, we we see it as jewelry you know earrings and necklaces and i have nothing against that at all we have a cross right here. We have crosses on steeples and different places. But I do want to warn us that it's easy, I think, for us to be sort of brought into the, a casual understanding of the cross, to forget its significance to our own lives and our own hearts as Christians. Because everybody is sort of used to the symbol of the cross, but the, cro the cross is meant to inspire something in the Christian's heart. We're called to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. We're called to, to understand the cost of the cross that it represents as Christians. What Jesus did for us is supposed to ring true with great depth and significance to inspire us to live humbly for him. Maybe a way for us to be sobered up by what the cross means is to understand its origins. 
Um, crucifixion, people dying on crosses didn't begin with Christ. The cross was invented or crucifixion was invented by the Persians and before it became a cross with a crossbar it was just the act of executing people in the most gruesome fashion by skewering them with a sharp pole and hanging them as a way to um, inspire obedience to the Persian king. And if you went against the law of Persia, you perhaps as a, um, an anarchist or a slave or a thief or an outsider, somebody outside of Persia would be hung on a cross, dead or alive. And in wartime, they would actually hang enemies on the cross by the thousands along the road to warn all who would be coming into Persia, hey, don't cross the king. Don't go against the law of the king. So very gruesome, very graphic. Um, the cross then was the crucifixion and crucifying people was perfected by the Romans and it was reserved for people who were not Roman citizens per se. It was for the, the worst of criminals. It was, it was to create the worst symbol of agony and pain known to the known world as a form of gruesome execution where people would bleed out, they would asphyxiate, they would suffocate. Um, during being crucified um, alive, they would defecate themselves. It was a horrible scene to warn people in the area that you don't go against who they called Lord back then, which was the Caesar of Rome. You don't, you don't mess with that Lord or you could be crucified. Well, that sobers us up about the symbol of the cross. One person put it this way. Don Carson said that, you know, the, the ancient mindset of the cross brought forward in today's time would be kind of like putting a, uh, a fresco painting of the graves of Auschwitz up in a church. That's what sort of the symbol of that form of execution would be like in terms of how we have the cross hung today. It sobers us up that way. But that's not the only way we are supposed to think about the cross. Yes, it's gruesome. Yes, it was a form of execution. But it has, for the Christian, become a symbol of grace. And it becomes a symbol of grace only when we first understand the nature of our sin. And how you and I, as people born sinners who have sinned, deserve and deserved the wrath, judgment, penalty of the cross we deserved to die for our sins an eternal death because we have flown in the face of an eternal holy god so death and wrath and judgment and the horrors of the cross that i just explained are what you and i deserve and deserved but instead of us having that penalty exacted to us against us that we deserve Christ came and intervened and stood in our place. And 2,000 years ago on Mount Golgotha, died on the cross for you and for me. Suffering the wrath of his father against him in our stead. Taking our sin onto himself being, as I read earlier in Isaiah 53, pierced through for our transgressions. Jesus did that for you and for me. And for us to understand the grace of the cross, we have to understand the cost of the cross. The cross was costly. It was costly to the Son of God. And grace is costly for you and me. We were, as the Bible says, bought with a price. 
a costly price. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus took that death upon himself. You know, these days in our culture, we um, can be sort of brought into the thinking of um, our society, which says that people really don't deserve any punishment of any kind whatsoever these days. I mean, people are punished, people are imprisoned, they're, they're put away, and a lot of times they're put in prison as a means of reform, right? We can sort of educate them and incarcerate them enough to protect them from society, to protect society from them, but they'll change through prison, through education, and some of that is true, but um, in that kind of thinking, it's easy to lose the point of punishment, which is people who break the law deserve to be punished. The retribution principle that imprisonment is, is retribution. It's what people deserve for what they've done wrong. This was sort of brought home to me this week. My wife um, was uh, drafted into jury duty, and she was selected for... Um, sitting on a jury this week, and all of that was resolved, and it was a three-day trial, and so I can talk about it now. The verdict is in, and all of that's over. But uh, Judy sitting on the jury was, was kind of funny to me because she, she loved being selected. I mean, you know, it, this is like, you know, she's a mom of six, and she's going, wow, you know, I get to go to the courthouse and sit there and, and wait with my Kindle and then, you know, get into, you know, adult conversation and discussion about things that matter. And, you know, the, so she was all into being on the jury and, and felt even, you know, special about being selected, you know, and whatever. And so she's doing that. You know, I sort of was on um, watching my youngest at home and studying this, but thinking about, you know, her participating in that reminded me of how our society thinks because the case was such where it was, it was a, a man in Mountain View who was drunk out of his mind and he owed a cab fare and the cabbie um, drove up and the guy started kicking the car and, you know, probably yelling out, you know, explicatives and, and just, you know, doing all of this and saying, I'm not going to pay. And so the cab driver walks around the car and the guy pulls out a six-inch blade and comes at him and chases him back into the car. Uh, according to the law, that's called assault with a deadly weapon, you know. And once they found the knife in the evidence time, uh, which was kind of humorous, they couldn't find it at first, they found it. They were able to prove that this guy had a big blade and came after the cab driver. But in, in terms of the discussion behind the scenes, people began to stick up for the guy who was drunk and the guy who had the blade because they said the cab driver's kind of gruff. And did you see how he responded during the questioning time? And he's pushing back. But that proved nothing. I mean, it, it didn't disprove the fact that that guy had indeed broken the law. But the guy, but this other person said, hey, but what about his wife and kids? And hasn't he already seen enough? And he was, he was sort of, you know, handcuffed and hasn't he experienced enough? Well, the law says that if you break the law in that way, then you should be penalized and fined and incarcerated for a certain period of time. So why not just stick to the law? Ultimately, the guy was convicted and Judy argued for the law and for, um, you know, following um, the, the penalty and procedure of things and justice and justice was served. I mean, we don't want people to just feel like they can get away with, you know, brandishing a knife and, and chasing people around. We don't want anarchy. And so you have laws that have real penalties and, and, and justice um, can be accomplished. But people forget about that. Who's followed the, uh, the, the trial or the case? I sort of read about it this week of Anders Brevik. 
you know, this uh, 33-year-old in, in Norway who attacked a Norwegian youth camp and slaughtered 60-some youth and teenagers because of political reasons, flying in the face of ethnicity and, and going against this, this sort of politically supported camp in Norway and slaughtered them and had, had also been part of the um, car bombing of six or eight more victims, you know, for his own causes. Well, that happened in July of 2011 Well, he was just indicted and ultimately admitted to the guilt of that, or at least the, uh, the doing of that, and will receive 21 years in prison because that's the highest maximum penalty that you can serve there unless you are deemed a threat still to society after 21 years. But the guy could easily get out at age 53 for slaughtering 77 people, which is about three months a victim in prison. And the prisons there have flat screen TV, TVs, gyms, workout areas. They have three rooms. You have food and you have, uh, you know, prison guards that are men and women because it, it makes it more congenial in there. And, and that's what he's doing. And this is what the guy said after he was convicted. He said, I admit the actions. I admit to the actions, but not to the guilt. See, the reason that we lose the grace of the cross and the significance of the cross is we forget how guilty we are and were before a holy God, before Jesus intervened. We forget the significance of the wrath that we deserve and deserved and the fact that Christ intervened and died in your place and in mine. And I want us to be sort of recaptivated by the costliness of grace, where we've been bought with a price by our Savior as he is depicted in these verses. These verses are very unique and very significant in, in terms of the gospel because they show us a window into the mind of Christ himself who chose to come down here to die for you and me. We're going to take a journey into Christ's descent from heaven to earth, to even obedience, to die on the cross, to go under the earth, as I'm going to say. Three levels of descent where Christ chose to come down here for you and for me. I'm going to use sort of the three realms that are depicted in verse 10. These are three realms of exaltation where three areas will, will be bowed low before Christ is Lord. You see that in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So we have three realms. We're going to start with Jesus in heaven, then he comes down to earth and goes to the cross dying, being put under the earth or in the earth, in the tomb. Let's learn about the cross now. Christ made three, a three-level descent. First of all, descent from heaven. Begin at verse 5, though. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says we have this privilege to actually have the mind of Christ or see into the very thoughts of God. That's what we're doing. We're, we're looking into the mind of Christ and Paul is calling the church to do this. In other words, church, he's speaking in plural here, think this way. Think the thoughts of Jesus Christ himself and literally this could mean which is yours in Christ Jesus or which these are the actual thoughts of Jesus Christ another way to interpret that second phrase is the idea that we're, we're going to look at Christ's actions his descent going to the cross and that tells us 
what Jesus was thinking. And we're supposed to meditate on Jesus' thoughts to change our lives. Because until the cross becomes costly, until you understand the cross in terms of what Jesus did and who he was and how he sacrificed himself, let me just suggest that you won't be moved at all by the gospel. The cross will just stay on the wall or be on your shirt or be an earring or a necklace, but it won't change your life. Costly grace is life-changing grace. So you have to be captivated by the cross in this way, or the commands of being humble will just sort of roll off into the next week and the next week and the next week as you hear it on Sundays, but it won't enter into your life. So you've got to go deep with Jesus into this descent. You've got to go with him for grace to change your life. Let's do that. Let's start up in heaven in verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's a unique verse. It's speaking of Christ in heaven. You know, I, I, I think of this in terms of how this paragraph has been um, understood, the great parabola. I'm no mathematician, so I had to like look back at what a parabola was in, in mathematical analysis and understanding it's, it's a U-shape on a graph, and you have the high end, and then you have the low end in the middle of the U, that's the vertex, and then you have the high end. And so this paragraph where Christ starts high and then goes low and then goes back up high is called the great parabola. That's where we're beginning, at the high end of things, where Christ is at the highest point in heaven. One pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, sort of created um, an interplay between God and Satan and God and Jesus as God and explained it this way. He said in a conversation, it would be like, Satan saying, I, this is, you know, when, before Satan fell, I will go up, 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 said Satan. And God answered, you will be cast down, down, down to hell. And then Jesus said, I will go down to the cross. And God the Father said, you will be given the name that is above every name. It's a parabola. It's what Jesus did, but he begins at the highest point. Verse 6 again. The highest point is where he is seen as in the form of God. Let me just say this up front. Don't be confused by this translation, this word form. This in no way suggests that Jesus isn't God, that he's somehow superficially God or he looks like God. This is a word that has a deeper meaning than the English can convey at the first blush look at it. Form of God here has kind of a subtle meaning. It's talking in terms of Jesus being in essence God because he is functioning as God. So you have sort of a mode and function um, dynamic going on with form. He is God because Jesus, for all eternity, has functioned as God. And we know he has functioned as God because he's called the creator of all things. He's called the word that was with God and was very God. John 1, 1. Hebrews 1, 3 says that Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
form here is talking about the nature of God, Jesus himself being God, even though at first look or first glance you could be confused by that word form, it is talking, it's the word morphe, it's talking in terms of Jesus functioning as God, and because of his functionality as God, it's proving that he is essentially, or his essence is God, as Hebrews 1.3 says. The parallel to that, the parallel use of that word is found in verse 7. Jesus taking the form of a servant, Morphe again. So, Jesus is fully God in verse 6, just as he became fully human in verse 7. And we prove his humanity because his mode of function was him functioning as a human slave here on earth. So, Jesus is Essentially, in essence, he is God, and then he came here to earth, and in addition to him being God, he took on humanity. John Calvin put it this way, the form of God means here his majesty, for as man is known by the appearance of his form, so the majesty which shines forth in God is his figure. So the majesty and the glory of God is seen in heaven where he was, enthroned there. He prayed that when he was on earth, before he died on the cross, remember in John 17, he prayed to his heavenly father, John 17, 5. He says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ is glorious in heaven. He's not just reflecting the glory of the Father. He is radiating glory because Jesus himself is glorious in heaven. And that glory was effulgent and powerful and shining brightly in glory for all of eternity past in heaven. Radiating the glory of God as God, very God So both in terms of his essence and nature and also in terms of his mode and function. That's what this word form means. Don't be confused by it. But look at this. Verse 6, the second part, can have sort of an equally challenging interpretation until you investigate it with some depth. I'm going to take some time with this phrasing here so to be sure that we get it, to be sure that we grasp it. It's actually going to you know, keep us just in these early verses of this paragraph so that we are sure to understand this translation. The ESV says, verse 6, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, I will confess to you that up until this week, I've been pretty confused as to how to interpret this verse. I've always approached this verse thinking that I was the one who was supposed to grasp a very confusing concept. Anybody else admit to interpreting it that way? That's the way I've interpreted. All the solid interpreters and commentators I went to interpreted it differently than I have always interpreted it. And I'm going to give you their interpretation, which I think is the biblical one. But I always thought that there was some sense in which, because Christ is the second member of the Trinity, he's, he's not totally equal to the Father, and so we've got to somehow grasp that, and that's why he became a servant here on earth. And it always sort of, you know, Didn't set well with me, but once I understood what Paul was actually saying, what was actually going on in the mind of Christ, then I understood it more clearly. Let me try to explain it to you. First of all, the subject of 
this phrase or clause is Christ himself. This is not talking about us grasping something. This is talking about something that Christ could have grasped, something he could have grabbed at but did not. First of all, notice the first part of this phrase, did not count equality with God. This is not saying that Jesus didn't think he was God. This is not some sort of mental lapse where Christ is going, wait a minute, am I, am I fully God or not? No. Jesus is actually affirming that he's deity, not being confused as to whether he's deity. He's saying he is equal with God. But it's saying that he didn't count his equality as something to be taken advantage of. The word grasped here could be interpreted exploited or taken advantage of. It would be as if Jesus would be in heaven saying, hmm, okay, I am God, very God, and I'm equal with God, and I'm going to use that as an excuse not to go down to earth. I'm going to grasp at that. It also could be interpreted um, a robber seizing something. I'm going to seize at something. The fact that I'm God means I don't have to go down to earth and suffer. I don't have to become a servant. I don't have to be humble because I am God. A thing he could have grasped at. Christ grasping at his own glory in a wrong way. Now Christ would never make that decision because he's perfect. The one who was in heaven as a created being who made that decision in opposite was Satan himself who said, I'm here and I deserve more. And so I'm going to grasp for more and I'm going to try to dethrone God. But Jesus, by contrast, did not grasp at his own glory, but debased himself into humility. Remember, we're, we're, we're seeing into the mind of Christ. We're seeing into his own very heart. Where he didn't, he didn't count his equality with God as something that would be exploited or that he took advantage of. He didn't do that. Remember the great struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he was going to the cross where he's sweating great drops of blood and he's, he's deciding, he's choosing to yield to the will of the Father saying, Lord, cut, let this cup of wrath, this judgment, let it pass. And he's in great anguish. And there's an angel that's literally ministering to him while he prays. He said, not my will, but your will be done. That, that happened in heaven before he even came to that moment on earth where he made a choice to say, I'm going to be humble. I'm going to come down and, and rescue people who could die in their sins. The point is, Christ, knowing he's God, had an authentic choice said, I am God, so I stay. Uh, he could have said, I am God, so I'm going to stay up here and I'll leave humanity to die in their sins. Or he could say, I am God, and because I'm God, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm go on a mission and not to use my glory as an excuse to stay. Remember, right before he died on the cross, he was praying in John 17, Lord, restore me to that glory that I once knew. He knew his glory was rightfully his, but he knew that his glory had to be clothed in humanity, human flesh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, veiled the incarnate deity. We just sang that. He knew that had to happen because it's the will of God. And it was his own very will. Jesus wasn't going as some, you know, beat up subordinate. God the Father and Jesus Christ, you can't divide their will 
They were in perfect, harmonious, face-to-face, in concert, loving fellowship as Jesus Christ chose to be obedient to the Father. We're going to look at that next week. D.A. Carson put it this way. By the way, one of my sons is named Carson. This is where it comes from. D.A. Carson, quote, The eternal son did not think of his status as God as something that gave him the opportunity to get and get and get. Instead, his very status as God meant he had nothing to prove, nothing to achieve, and precisely because he is one with God, one with this kind of God, he made himself nothing and gave and gave and gave. So the fact that he is glorious, the fact that he is wonderful, the fact that he is perfect is why he chose to come. And rescue. I, I heard one preacher uh, sort of talk about it in this way, and I'll put it in my own um, life circumstance and phrasing, but it's, and it might sound superficial and, and a little bit um, weaker than what's here, but it, it sort of made it real to me. As a parent of six, there are times where I will be sitting upstairs. And, you know, you can be a parent of one and, or even have, you know, Um, people you're watching and and resonate with this, but you know that there are times where you hear certain noises and you're evaluating them in terms of um, how desperate a situation is in the next room, especially downstairs. Now you're comfortably in your bed, you're watching your TV, you're relaxing, you're enjoying all the comforts of being an adult and a father, you know, who at times might check out. And so I'm upstairs and I hear crashes and perhaps even, you know, wounds taking place or you know blood being let on the floor who knows and you have to make a choice you say well am I going to stay here or am I going to get involved and so you call out and you say hey boys hey boys what are you doing down there you know what's going on hey you better stop there's a warning here because I might be coming down to exact justice and judgment on you for what you're destroying you know, I've found all kinds of things. Back when it was just Riley and Logan, one time they had, had woken up at 5 in the morning and taken all of the chocolate and strawberry sauce and created an ice rink on the kitchen floor. I mean, they, I've seen some wild things that were in the next room. And so if you're upstairs and you hear something going on, you call down. And then instead of just going down yourself, you might send somebody as your emissary, as your, as your missionary, as your prophet to say, look, I might be coming. So you say, Riley, Logan... Go down there and check on the twins. See what's going on. See what's being destroyed. And they say, hey, you better stop because judgment's coming. Someone's going to come down and you're going to get disciplined for what you're doing. So you send your prophets. And then finally, finally, you have a choice. And if you're in the spirit and you're a loving parent, you say, you know what? I'm going to go down and before I bring judgment, I'm going to bring some grace. And I'm going to go down personally and see what's going on. And I'm going to get in a frame of mind where I'm actually going to relate to them in their weakness. And I'm going to get on my knees, and I'm going to look them in the eyes, and remember that I was once a child like them, no matter what's happened or what they've destroyed, and I'm going to embrace them and love them and say, listen, you know you're doing wrong, but I'm going to help you out of this situation. I'm going to intervene and pull you out from under the curse of judgment that could be coming to you, and I'm going to help you by becoming like you in this situation. That's what Jesus Christ did. That's what he chose to do. He could have um, exacted every right and privilege to stay in heaven, but instead he chose to humble himself and come down here to earth to relate to us as a faithful high priest, to 
clothe himself in humanity and weakness to feel things like we feel things so that he could experience life with us and die for us in our place. So instead of the judgment that we deserve, we receive grace if we choose to accept it. This is the gospel. This is the story of Christ descending to earth. Well, he did come to earth, and verse 7 is what leads us to this. It says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This is Jesus' descent to earth from heaven. And it begins to tell us how costly grace really is. How costly is grace? How much does the cross cost? But emptying himself. This word emptying can be as confusing as the word form was in the prior verse. Emptying. A lot of times people will be tempted, and that, that's what the literal word means. It's kenosis. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament, so it's a unique word. It means emptying. So a lot of times people say, well, i got to take that very literally and believe that Christ, as the second member of the Trinity, came here to earth, and so something happened to him, obviously, and there must have been something that he emptied out of himself. Some of his deity or some form of his attributes had to be suspended or put on the back burner, as a lot of people will explain it. And with texts like these and with words like these, I want to just caution all of us to fly very low to the text and just understand what these specific words mean. The emptying. What does that mean? Well, First of all, I want to be clear that Jesus Christ in no way lost any of his deity. He is unable to lose any of his deity because Jesus, he was, he is, and he is to come. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, is God. He is God. John 1, 1, as I said before, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God is the creator, as Colossians 1 says, all things were created by him and for him. He's the uncreated I am, as he calls himself. Jesus is called the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, speaks of this as well. Let me find it here. I'll find it in my, my Bible first. More than my notes. Hebrews 1.8, it's one of the most clear texts on the deity of Christ. I know that we come to need to um, defend Christ's deity often with cults and people that come. This is what the Father in heaven said of Christ. It says, but the, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Did you hear that? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus is God. Jesus lost none of his deity any more than a, a porcupine without his quills is called a porcupine. I mean, you, you cannot separate God's attributes from Christ. Now you say, but Jesus Christ was localized in human flesh, so how could it be omnipresent? I don't know exactly, but you know, he saw Philip under the tree. I mean, he's he's omniscient. His his omniscience 
was upheld because he never ceased to be God in any way when he took on flesh. So what does emptying mean then? If it's not literally pouring something out of himself, then what does that mean? Well, the meaning of emptying is explained by the very next phrase. It's right after the comma in your Bible. He became emptied by taking. Look at this. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So Jesus, what that means is emptying meant he took on. Jesus is 100% God who added humanity to himself. 100% humanity. That's the hypostatic union. It's a mystery. But Jesus didn't say, I'm going to exchange my deity in any way to become a human. He is fully God, and then he adds humanity to himself in the form of a human slave. It's the word doulos, slave. Fully God and fully man at the same time. John Calvin put it this way. Christ indeed, quote, could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time. He laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it, by veiling his glory. His glory came out in the miracles of Christ, in the teachings of Christ, in, in ways at Mount Transfiguration, the glory of God was on display before Peter, James, and John. Maybe he was dialoguing and discussing this with Elijah and Moses on the mount. Don't know. But his glory was there, but it was veiled. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about Christ emptying himself in terms of a word picture or a metaphor, not in terms of him lessening his deity in any way. Isaiah 53, 12 uses the same language. It says, quote, he poured out his soul unto death. You hear that? He poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. By Christ being humble, that's his emptying himself. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's the parabola, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see? That's the emptying. He became poor. He took on the form of a servant. He concealed his glory. The King James Version, I think, nails this with the beautiful language that it uses. Interpreting this in this way, it says, Christ, that literally, instead of emptying, if you have a King James Version, it says, Christ made himself of no reputation. I think that nails it. The NIV nails it as well. Quote, he made himself nothing. That's what we're talking about here. It's uh, John 17 again. You might turn over there. This is the, the prayer of Christ to the Father. What did he say? Right before he was going to die, he's sort of sharing his mind here. This is the mind of Christ. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, quote, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Look at this language. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That and there puts God the Father and God the Son on par with each other. It's like a divine equal sign in the Bible. Every time you see God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it's very Pauline to introduce letters that way. It's the divine conjunction where you're saying God the Father and God the Son are both in essence, in substance, God. And Jesus is saying, listen, my glory has been veiled here on earth. I'm going to the cross. Will you please restore me to the glory that I once knew in heaven? That's his prayer. Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the one true God. Verse 5, and, or verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He lived in perfect righteousness. That's what he means there in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Well, verse 6 is before the world existed. Verse 7 is when the world existed and he came here in the form of a slave. And before he grew up to be that slave, he was a baby in Bethlehem. And that's what the end of verse 7 is talking about. Look at this. It says, being born in the likeness of men. There's no doubt that this was a human baby laid in a manger that the shepherds saw. And then a toddler probably that the wise men saw. And both, as soon as they saw that man, he looks like a man. That's what the phrase is actually saying. It's, it's talking in terms of third person. These shepherds, these wise men, they saw the baby and he appeared to be a man. And indeed, he was fully man. And we know from the narrative that they bowed down and worshipped him, not just as a man, but as God and as Messiah and as king. What we're going to reflect upon next week. Because next week we'll see that Jesus not only descended from heaven to earth, but died on the cross. And I'm using that metaphorically as him going under the earth. He went to the ultimate descent of death on the cross. The, the, the horrible, as we began, the horrific, awful, worst way to die at that time. The most humiliating death possible. Naked, on a cross, dying suffering, suffocating, as God, very God, dying in your place and my place as fully man so that he could die, literally, to take away and atone for our sins. That's what we're going to look at next week. Jesus' descent under the earth. A few points of application. Number one, and I, I sort of wrote these points out in this way. This is humility for Christ. It's Christ's humility but it's not just for Christ, it's also for you. And that's what Philippians 2 is doing. Uh, the exhortation and the application of this we've already talked about. That was last week. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility or humility of mind. It's our thinking now. We're, we've just plumbed the depths of Christ's mind. Now this is your mind. In humility of mind, count others more significant than yourselves. It's, it's putting other people's needs before your own. Other people's, verse 4, interests above your own. 
This is having the mind of Christ and applying the mind of Christ in daily living. And let me just say this. Again, I fall into pride and selfishness, this vain conceit and self-focused living all the time. And it takes this level of gospel meditation to break through pride like that in my own heart. Doesn't it? I mean, pride is every day, and you got to have the gospel break through that glass window and shatter it so that we can be humble. To be humble is so Christ-like, and the devil does not want you to be humble. He wants you to be like him, the liar, the deceiver, who will tell you lies and say, if you're proud and arrogant, you lock your jaw and you stand your ground, you're going to be blessed like me. That's a lie. Satan went up, 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 and God cast him down, down, down to eternal hell. That's what he is doomed to have for all of eternity as time comes to a close at the end. We're called to make the same choice daily that Christ made. Somebody came up after first hour and applied it in this way and said, you know, it's kind of like when you're standing in line and come Christmas time, we're going to be in line a lot. People are going to cut you off and your pride sort of stokes and you say, man, I deserve to be in front. But instead, to be Christ-like is to say, go ahead and just stand back. Now, I mean, it's, that's the attitude of Christ-likeness where you put other people's needs first how do you put an enemy's needs before your own you let the gospel shatter your proud heart how do you put your children's needs your spouse's needs your neighbor's needs your family members needs first the gospel has to be involved and it has to be involved at this level and let me just remind you this is spiritual warfare at its most i don't know the word uh you know at at its strongest at its uh, zenith Spiritual warfare is dynamically going on when you have pride versus humility. You have Satan versus the example of Jesus. And that's what's going on in your heart. This is spiritual warfare. People say, you know, I don't think it's demonic or spiritual unless it's, uh, you know, sort of a person who's turned green and is vomiting and his head spinning around. That's, you know, fine. But, but what we're talking about is spiritual warfare that's dynamically happening today in your everyday experience. That is pride versus humility. And humility comes by the gospel. The greatest sort of victory in spiritual warfare was when Jesus obeyed and died on the cross in humility. That's what crushes the serpent's head and cast the serpent serpent to hell in terms of his destiny. Well, one more. Humility renounced rights. That's Jesus, and humility renounces rights. We don't have any rights in the gospel. Uh, Jesus is, and I said this last week, I'll say it again, he is the leveler of all pride. There's no sense in which you can say, look, I can't esteem that person higher than myself because they don't deserve it. I'm better than that person, and my needs are more important than that person's. The reason we can't do it is because our example cannot be trumped. We cannot start at a higher level than the eternal Son of God began, the highest point of the parabola he came from heaven down 
to earth to humble himself and serve you as a slave underneath you. This is God, very God. That's what the death of the cross is. That's how much it costs. And so we can't value our rights and say we're worth more than other people because Jesus didn't. So as Jesus renounced his rights, that's our daily life as a Christian is to renounce our rights and serve the needs of other, others. The hymn that maybe we'll sing in time, uh, it's a hymn, May the Mind of Christ, took on uh, this lyric, these lyrics took on significance to me as I studied this passage. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would have the mind of Christ. I pray that, Lord, we would not in any way um, shrink back from what you've taught us today, but actually engage the battleground and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Lord, let us be humble like he was humble and he is our intercessor. And, and that is a bespeaks the humility, the, the dynamic humility of Christ in our life. He's creator, and yet he empathizes with us on a daily basis and moment-by-moment moment basis. And Lord, I pray that for those who do not yet know Christ, that, Lord, you would draw them and compel them to Christ this December season, even today. Lord, for those who you are you are convicting, I pray that they would indeed say, I accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. Today, I repent of my sins. I can't hang on to my sins. Jesus, you didn't hang on to your glory, but you veiled it. You concealed it and came down here to suffer for us. You met us where we are. And Lord, I pray that you would meet people today right where they are and that they would open their hearts to you, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would awaken them to see the glory of Christ. Let them give their lives and hearts to you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this worship hour, this worship service, and our meditation on the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand.